Hello and welcome to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. And uh, today we're going to talk about the recent Spider-Man movie. And we're going to talk about the Bechdel test. And we're going to talk about uh, how how seemingly easy it is to get it right and uh, why it's much more frustrating when people get it wrong. But uh, before we get into the, the program today, I also want to um, give a shout out to our producer and engineer, uh, Mason, who's going to be joining me on this broadcast. Hello, Matt. Hello. And, um, and which will be horrifying to everybody is that Mason has not seen Spider-Man yet. So I'm going to be talking about a film that he hasn't seen. And I, I'm gonna I am try, very nervous. <laughs> try not to spoil anything while still discussing something of substance. I also want to mention that, of course, pod sequentialism uh, grew out of the pop sequentialism exhibition and, uh, and, um, and blog, and that I, I just received word this week that we're going to do a republication of Pop Sequentialism. It's going to get a hardcover edition. It's going to be expanded. It'll probably be about four or five times the size of the original. That's amazing. Good job. Yeah, yeah thank you. And uh, going to include a lot of the stuff that's been coming out over the last six or seven years since we did the first one and that includes a lot of amazing work being done in superhero comics and for those of you who have not uh, seen the pop sequentialism catalog you can still get the last few remaining copies for me directly you can go to popsequentialism.com you can just shoot me an email at info at popsequentialism.com you can also contact me via facebook uh, on our pod sequentialism page or you can call up uh, gallery 30 south in pasadena uh, which is, of course, also another uh, major supporter of this podcast because it is my gallery with my wife. And uh, you can also listen to her uh, interview on this podcast as her jewelry line, Adnohia, and the Insomnia line. And she's always producing new work for uh, for the gallery and for a few boutique shops across the world and generally works into her new line a collaboration with each of the artists that we show at Gallery 30 South. Last month, we had Lindsay Way, of course, of Mindless Self-Indulgence, and also someone who's been on this podcast. Great interview. And Francis Bean Cobain. And I uh, saw Francis actually uh, Friday night, and it was great to be able to touch base and, and kind of talk about the show that was and the success that it was. She seemed great, and um, it was just wonderful to be able to, you know, give a, a sort of add a girl you know and say you know really job well done and and to see that all the press that we got and talking everything from the new york times to the wall street journal to the new music express and rolling stone and w magazine and jane and id and vice giving us a, a really great review and a lot of great coverage and uh, we also as you know i also run the 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 gallery exhibitions at La Luz de Jesus Gallery, where I'm also the director. That is inside the Waco Soap Plant Superstore. And uh, many people have probably seen any recent image of the band Muse in releasing their new uh, album, I guess, is out. Uh, they were releasing singles at first. Every picture of them is them standing in front of the mural in front of Waco without permission. They didn't get permission. He must be so pleased. Oh, you know, and uh, they didn't tag us either. But the uh, the upside of that is that, um, and now we kind of own them a little bit. But uh, I love the band, and I would have had no problem with allowing them to do so. But I understand that they do have budgets, and they really should call out attention to the artist, Shrine, um, who who did the amazing work. You can follow him at, at Shrine On. And you can, of course, follow La Luz de Jesus at at La Luz de Jesus. And you can follow Gallery 30 South at Gallery 30 South. And I encourage you also to uh, keep up with what's going on with the Panic Collective, and that's Panic with a K. And, of course, you can follow us as at PodSec, P-O-D-S-E-Q. So, yeah, we just had a huge movie open, a movie that a lot of people have been waiting for for quite a long time. It took a long time to get the rights back to the Marvel Cinematic Universe of Spider-Man. Involved a little bit of maneuvering and trading and allowing certain characters to be used in certain other films. You know, there's the the usage of Megasonic Teenage Warhead, I believe, in the Deadpool movie. And a few other characters from the Marvel Universe that were not included with the rights package in the X-Men films were bartered in exchange for the ability to use Spider-Man. But the smartest thing that Sony did, and it's easy to overlook this, is they really allowed the Marvel people, meaning 
the Marvel Cinematic Universe to basically make their movie for them. That it was a co-production, but all of the elements of that deal, and of course having Iron Man and other you know, Avenger-related characters in the film, meant that it had to conform to this aesthetic that's been established in the Marvel Cinematic Universe, and which differs a lot from the DC Universe in a fun, you know, just a really light-hearted approach to superhero films. And it really, I think people that are familiar with what Joss Whedon did on television would say that that was the feel they were going for before they brought Joss into making movies at Marvel. I would agree. I think Firefly really set the tone. That's one of my personal faves where you have dark dramatic, but it's alleviated by fun comedic moments. And DC, as you said, got really nailed over their dark, gritty tone Mm -hmm. repeatedly. But Wonder Woman appears to have rallied and changed that. Yeah. It's definitely a much a much more fun film. Uh, Gal Gadot looks great in the, in the role. And Her just... hair and makeup artist, whoever they are. I should look yeah. them up in the credits. Bang up job. Yeah. Fantastic job, people. She has never looked better, in my opinion. Yeah, I, I would I would agree. And as someone who grew up in the Linda Carter 70s era, that's a hard a hard mantle to pass. Yeah. But, you know, Gal Gadot is, is really, she just has charisma that just comes off of the screen. And Chris Pine is... is wonderful to watch and is is sort of a kind of postmodern version of Steve Trevor. Right. And it works out well because they have on-screen charisma and that's important. You know that you it's always surprising when you see a couple that's great on on screen if you find out later that they didn't get along. What's easier to spot is when people who do get along in real life just don't have any on-screen charisma. Yeah. You know like Brad Pitt and well, Brad Pitt and Angelina Jolie have had good chemistry on, on screen, but Brad <laughs> famously, Pitt, yes, Brad Pitt did a film with Julia Roberts, and they're they're friends. You know, they're very friendly. A film called The Mexican, and there is right. no charisma on screen. To be fair, that movie was just messed up. It was a surrealist experiment in time <laughs> yes. travel. It was so weird. It, all right, um, we're not going to talk about The Mexican. Please yes. continue. Yes, but what I think is is hopefully going to come back into. The DC Universe is, with the Justice League movie is more of that Avengers feel, more of that spirit of incidental fun. And I think with The Flash, we might be able to get that. And also, I think Aquaman, they've been kind of setting him up as the comedic relief. Let's hope so. Because he, otherwise... He's the one, he's like, I'm not really from here. I can look at your craziness from an outsider point of view. You know, he walks up to the Batman, dressed like a bat. I dig it. I get it. Ha ha ha. I love yeah. it. And he's riding on top of the Batmobile. So I think based well, on the trailer. Let's hope that that stuff that we saw in the trailer is is indicative of what we're going to see in the Justice League movie. The, the worry for me, again, is that that presentation of Batman that we saw in Batman versus Superman. You mean the murderer? Yes. <laughs> it goes well beyond the scope of any version of Batman that we've seen in the comics. Sure. And I think uh, what, one thing I'm really looking forward to is uh, Sean Murphy's Dark Knight uh, or Batman White Knight series that's coming up. It'll be out in October in which the Joker is the good guy and Batman is the villain. Is it from Joker's POV? I'm, I'm not sure how it's told. You know, I, have, his, I haven't his seen. psyche could be fractured. Or That's right. Interesting. That's well, interesting. I think he's someone who ends up going in jail and he becomes somewhat of a social warrior against what he sees as being this, this Batman is this vigilantism and, and this hard right kind That's of cool. approach, which makes sense. Like if, if you, especially if you look at Frank Miller's Dark Knight, mm-hmm. which was very right wing. And when I can't read it anymore, when I go back and I read it, I'm like, this is really like Death Wish. This is, this is clearly a comic book written by someone who used to be liberal and became very conservative. And that, that's Frank Miller in a nutshell. I mean, I don't doubt that, but I, I don't get that off of reading it, but it's been a long time. Yeah, I, I, of it course. It came out, what, in the 80s? 86, 87. Yeah. So I, I read it on the newsstand as it was coming out. There's a couple of delays between issues, so mm. I was reading it basically monthly. That was also around the same time that Watchmen was coming out and Mage was on the newsstands. Yeah, there was that whole... That time, man, yeah. some of the greatest Sandman, and that's Dark, Dark Knight. Th- Sandman comes Watchmen, a little bit later little because bit. it's you know, kind of, he, Gaiman is that first post right. Alan Moore, and, and Alan Moore had started to go a little bit off the tracks with uh, <laughs> things like Big Numbers, Lost Girls. Lost Girls came out much later too, but the um, don't that, don't seek that out, listeners. Don't not, worry. Not a huge fan of that, and it's a shame because I like both of the people who who produced it. Yeah, but the the 
digression here is that with that very, very grim tone and lacking the lightheartedness, everything is life or death. And so nothing is important. And what was really great about Spider-Man Homecoming is it's one guy versus one guy who has henchmen. And he's got a little bit of help, but it's ostensibly a one good guy versus one bad guy film. It's not something that's going to destroy the world. It's not something that, you know, the lives of the of the known universe are, are all hanging in the balance because we've seen way too much of that lately. Right. And I say that as somebody whose favorite villain in comics is Darkseid. Like, that, he's my favorite, my absolute favorite. And I love the the Kirby New Gods line and the the stuff that he did with the um and, and Dave uh, sorry um and Keith Giffen's take on Legion of Superheroes that run which brought Darkseid back into the DC universe was among my favorite comics of all time and I still have great fondness for it but it takes place over such a long time frame over so many issues that it's it's hard to recommend to someone because you already do have to be a little bit familiar with the Legion and you have to hang in there for a really, really long time to get all the subtlety and nuance of it. That's what kind of led to Crisis on Infinite Earths was how really difficult it was to just opt into one of these very long-running titles without knowing much about the character. Now, one criticism that I've seen, actually Steve Bissett, you know, a friend of this podcast, a great mentor to myself, had mentioned in his review, and he, he enjoyed the film too, but he said that it, it, if it had any shortcomings... It was that he felt that seeing these these teenagers that look like bodybuilders mm-hmm. is is a little bit difficult. I actually disagree with him, and I don't think that Peter Parker looked like a bodybuilder. I think he looked at best like a high school acrobat. And uh, my cousin Russell, big shout out Russell Kennedy, who was a um, a gymnast uh, when he was young, had a very similar build. And you know Tom Holland is not a big guy; he's small, which is perfect. I love the fact that you've got you know kind of a, a little guy Spider Man. And so I, I disagree with him on that front, but I do agree that one of the the shortcomings of this film as an individual film is that it relies so heavily on what has come before that you have to kind of already know going in all about Iron Man and you have to sort of have seen Civil War to kind of get exactly the gist. Is this taking place in the timeline directly after Civil War? There is a se- a sequence at the beginning which represents what you've seen. That's where Tom Holland first appears as Spider-Man, as Spider-Man. right? It's okay. the first appearance of Spider-Man in, in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Right. And it is, in my opinion, the best use of quote-unquote found footage or like videotape footage that sure. appears in a film since Blair Witch. Oh, so it's high praise. It's so well done. It's so well done, yeah. and his he's perfectly cast. He he looks like a fifteen year old kid, right? And I believe that was kind of a sixteen year old kid. I believe that was the aim of the original run of Spider Man. You know the, the Ditko and oh. and and Stan Lee comic book series was that he was he was a high school kid. Yeah, he and, was a teenager. And if you go back and you you look at those those issues Steve Ditko didn't draw Peter Parker like he was a high school kid he looked like a guy yeah and so in a way it even restores that and there's a couple of sequences from that Ditko run that are completely recreated in the movie perfectly the way that you you, when you see it like there were a lot of Spider-Man fans in the screening that I saw it was a, a preview screening there were a lot of people in costume the guys that were next to me in line were were some some guys from the east coast that worked in comic book stores that you know, they, they got a hookup and they came out to do this and they were, and before the film opened, they were, I was listening to their banter talking about, you know, their favorite stuff about Spider-Man. They had somebody doing a Q&A on Spider-Man trivia before the, the film opened. They were giving uh, out cool. various gifts. That's awesome. And it was fun to watch people answering. Spider-Man's no joke, man. Everyone I talk to, if they're not hardcore Superman, Batman, it's Spider-Man. Yeah. It's not, anytime they're like, oh, I prefer Marvel, it's typically Spider-Man. Yeah. And what's funny is that when when I was a kid in the 70s, there was the Spider-Man TV series, and then there was also the Hulk series, and I was more of right. a Hulk guy. 
I was a Spider-Man and his amazing friends. And I, I love that show. That was great. That Saturday morning was, cartoon was amazing. Fantastic. I didn't like that they made Wolverine and the X-Men appearance on that sound like Humphrey Bogart. That right. was weird to me. Yeah. Well, they really hyped up that he was Australian for some reason. It was really weird. Yeah, strange. Yeah. Canadian, Australian, strange. Yeah. But the the beauty of it was that you did get this little peek into things. And of course, it was strange to me too as, as a longtime X-Men fan that Iceman was a roommate of Spider-Man and then they this kind of out. created for the TV series character of um, Firestar. Firestar. My favorite. She's awesome. She's basically Mary Jane as a superhero. Yes, and that's exactly what she was supposed to be. She yeah. was supposed to be Mary Jane, but all of a sudden they lost the rights to the cartoon version. And yeah. so they were like, what are we going to do? We've already drawn this gorgeous redhead. Yeah. We'll just not mention Mary Jane and make her a Firestar. And her costume looked kind of like Aurora's. Oh, not Aurora, I take it back. No, it, it was more like I mean, Marvel Girl. It was a little bit like Phoenix. Oh, a little. Yeah. I would actually... Oh. The color scheme, I yeah, guess, yeah, is what I'm a little about. bit. But I was very happy to find out that Firestar, before Harley Quinn, Firestar gained such popularity on the animated series that she made her way into, into comics. The comics, yeah. Unfortunately, she became quickly a B-roll and got cancer from her powers, yeah. which I was really bummed out about. Briefly going back to our previous episode where you were talking about deaths in comics yes. and how they affected, that one really messed me up too when I was, oh my God, Firestar has ovarian cancer from her powers. Thank God, that's heavy, yeah. I, was, I, I wasn't reading any of the comics that that, that, that became a part of, and that, that probably happened when I sort of fell out of comics. It was real under the radar. Yeah. Like, if you weren't a Firestar fan, you weren't going to find out, but it was intense for me. Right, right. So now, another thing that... Uh, and I, I mean, basically, the praise has been almost universal. I, I haven't checked Rotten Tomatoes lately, but the everyone score is like been, 89 or higher. Everyone has been telling me, go see it. It's amazing. Yeah. Everyone on Instagram has been telling me, it's amazing. Go see it. Mm-hmm. This is. I'll say this, that the pre-title sequence seemed a little tacked on, mm-hmm. but it was very necessary. Like, it was absolutely necessary for you to understand what the rest of the movie is going to be like. But that immediately, if you if you hadn't already seen the last couple of Marvel films, you may be very out of your element. You know that you you you'd have no idea what was going on. The uh, you know Steve had said he compared the role of Michael Keaton in this. Mm-hmm. You know, it, not surprising anybody by telling you he's the Vulture. Um, he really. It's a little bit of the Ray Kroc that he played in. The founder, the the McDonald's mm, film, mm-hmm. and it's a little bit of that just kind of darkness that Michael Keaton would bring to certain roles. Any uh, Birdman in there? A little bit of Birdman, yeah. you know, be, but he's not psychotic. Sure. You know what I loved about this actually is that, in a way, he's among the least villainous villains that we've seen, at least from a point of view of why he's doing what he's doing. Mm-hmm. But it doesn't become this, you know, emo war of, oh, but I must do this for this this reason. It's a real meat and potatoes reason. That's cool. And it's a meat and potatoes reason that, you know, it's like, yeah, I understand I'm doing this, and if, you know, if I get caught, I could go to jail type of thing, you know. But it's worth I'm, it. I'm, it's worth it. And so mm-hmm. he, he's, he's got a little bit of that Pacific Heights yeah, okay. to him. Well, that's an obscure reference. It is, Good but job. it isn't. I mean, Michael Cimino, you know, an, 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 sure. an Oscar-winning uh, director who directed that, someone who passed away not too long ago. Sure. And that film is dark. You know, he plays a, a, a guy who basically moves into the multi-unit apartment building that this young couple buy and, and ruins their lives and almost kills them. But in, in uh, some sort of bizarre real estate scheme. It's really weird. He's, yeah. He's a con man. Famous for use of the Ice Cube French Kiss. Yeah. <laughs> That was the first time. <laughs> anyway. Look it up, kids. Look it up. Don't. Don't worry about it. So the the film is more than just the sum of its parts. And there's a lot of really great individual elements to it. Um, the music, I thought, was wonderful. And, you know, the Ramones are on the soundtrack. The Ramones, of course, grew up in Queens, which is the same neighborhood that Aunt May lives in. 
you know, that we've already seen in, in Civil War that Marissa Tomei plays Aunt May. So Aunt May is younger and hotter than we ever saw her in the comic. Right. I have seen numerous memes where it's Tom Holland kind of looking away ashamed and the director's she's your aunt you have to look at her yeah and she's in this tight outfit yeah and and they they play that up a little bit what's what's also interesting in a kind of meta type of way is that marissa tomei was originally cast as carrie in sex in the city whoa and couldn't do it because she was booked on something else it was in production long enough that they didn't get to do it and i always felt that she would have been a better version of carrie because She's well. In my opinion, I think that she is more of that. Grew up in New York. Yeah, she's character. from New York, right? Yeah, I've always been a huge fan of Marissa Tomei. As so, have I. You As know, have I. I can't. I can't fault her on anything. Everything she's done, I've loved. I, I think that she's inherently more likable too. But I do think that you know, for people who are diehard fans of of the show Sex and the City, that they are so married to the fashion and the attitude of of the people that, you know, were cast and are, are in the show, that it, it's really impossible to separate the two. But I remember when I had heard that um, Marissa Tomei was cast, I, I, I was, after having already seen some of the shows, like, oh, that would have been better. Mm. So there's, there's like interesting little nods here and there to other things. And, you know, one thing that has hit the press, and I'm, I'm not spoiling anything, if you paid any attention to, to the casting that went into this, was... That we were we were told that someone was cast as as Mary Jane, right? You know Zendaya, and that there was a little bit of of backlash because she doesn't really look like any version of Mary Jane we've seen in the comic. Huge! We had a huge debate about it on History of the Batman back in the day about right, how much does race play into the character versus the art versus you know it's interesting. Mm. Well, there's a lot of Easter eggs in the film that set up. A lot of what's been going on in the Marvel Universe. I'm going to say that this is, from a diversity point of view, the single most diverse film that has come out of any of the Marvel films thus far. Cool. Uh, There is nothing that could be denoted as, I'm going to borrow this term from another show uh, on on the network, that was, um, there's no tokenism. Mm. You know, that everybody who is in the film is a representation of that character first, and fulfilling a certain amount of demographic appeal fifth. You know, like that there's three other places in between there that, that speak to make it, it enriches the environment. It makes the, the high school more believable. As far as I could see in the film, there were, aside from teachers, there's only really like two white students. Oh, cool. Because he goes to school in Queens. Yeah, isn't it inner city? Yeah, he's, yeah. He's, it takes place in Queens. Right. So the, the neighborhood demographic is well represented. There's a lot of Pack Islanders that live in Queens. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of Filipinos that live in Queens. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of Filipinos in that high school. Cool. And there's um, a lot of a lot of Latinos. There's a lot of African Americans. It's it, it really captures the cultural demographic of a changing America, but especially New York City. Mm. And so... When you see characters that you're familiar with from the comic book, some of them really, you're like, oh, yeah, oh, wow. How come this is the first film that ever mentions that character that goes mm. back to the first couple issues of Spider-Man? That's cool. And in other cases, you're like, where's where's this other person that we're expecting? Hey, how come that person isn't here? And my answer to that is, you've seen it a million times. <laughs> you know, they don't retell the origin. Right. Which I think is the greatest decision they made about the film. I know. I remember that was a huge debate, and it sounds like they made the right choice. Well, you know, the joke about Batman's origin is told in every single film. My favorite thing about Wonder Woman is that they didn't tell Batman's origin again. <laughs> I, I would say that about Spider Man, too, that, you know, miraculously the Batman origin wasn't told in a superhero film in a different universe. Right. And by not retreading this other water, it really does preserve and, and enrich my enjoyment of Spider Man, too. And I think that Tom Holland is a much better Peter Parker than Tobey Maguire. He's much more age-appropriate. But I, I still really like those first two Spider-Man movies that uh, Sam Raimi did. Yeah. And I think his love of the character really made those films fantastic. Well, they had a very comic book feel to them. Yeah, and and yet a lot of poignancy. Sure. And this film with has great, all of that. With great power, Mac. <laughs> great, great responsibility, responsibility. yes. There you go. And, you know, when they redid them, it was completely lifeless. Uh, when they brought back, when they, they brought Gwen Stacy 
into the universe and those those two films that were supposed to yield a third and then didn't with Andrew Garfield. Uh, Andrew Garfield, I thought, was a terrible um, Spider-Man, a terrible Peter Parker. It turns out he hated the role. Well, hate is a strong word. He was uncomfortable in the role and he regretted taking the role. It was interesting. Although huh. I loved Emma Stone as Gwen Stacy. Uh, I don't know. Clearly I've hit a nerve. <laughs> I, I really love Emma Stone. I love Emma Stone. I don't even remember her wow. in the films. She was the only thing I did remember. Like, I remember in that first Andrew Garfield film, there's a scene where he sort of falls off the building, and it's supposed to be one of those <gasps> moments, and no one gave a dish. It was just like, yeah, he's, okay, three, two, one, and he's back. Okay, back on track. Right. It, was, it was lifeless. Right, and right, I, right. I kept saying that the only reason Mark Webb got the job is because his last name was Webb. Ah. But uh, you know the the guy who directed the most recent Spider Man is another indie filmmaker. You know he's he's a guy that uh, doesn't really have a lot of experience with um, with action or with big budgets, and he was fabulous. You know, it was perfectly picked. But I have to think that Kevin Feige was very much involved, as he has been with every film that he has produced, and that that might have helped mentor this person who's directed other films uh, step into sort of bigger shoes. And it just really, really plays true. It's, you know, I don't, I don't want to ruin anything for you because you haven't seen it yet. There's uh, a lot of things that could be discussed, not the least of which is Mary Jane. And the way that that is handled is kind of amazing because you think you know, and then you think you don't know, and then you're really not sure, and then you get a wonderful surprise. And that's basically the whole film. Like, mm. the whole film has a lot of these little moments that, sure, all the evidence is there, but you don't quite see it coming. And there's so it's such a rich environment mm. that there's stuff going on all over the peripherals in this film. Oh, that's cool. So that you can, you know, sort of like Guardians of the Galaxy 2, mm-hmm. where when you're watching just from the opening credits of Guardians of the Galaxy 2, there's so much going on in the peripherals that it's e- you are easily distracted to try and capture the thing that you want to look at, mm. that it really lends itself to multiple viewings. It holds up after multiple viewings. And I'm very much looking forward to seeing Spider-Man again. And, you know, people can, can you know, get... I don't know, judgmental about me giving so much of my money to a big corporation, but you know what? They really earned it this time around. But one thing that did come up in the discussion of of the new Spider-Man movie is something that's been in the news a bit, and it's the Bechdel test. Right. Now, the Bechdel test, for those who are unfamiliar, is a test that has three requirements— uh, the first of which is that the movie has to have at least two women in it. Mm-hmm. They have to talk to each other, and it has to be about something other than a man. Yeah. And there's been some other elements that have been thrown on top of it as well uh, after the after the the fact to expand upon that. Um, that they have to have names. Right. You have to know their names. You know things like that. And so uh, the Mary Sue, which is a fan site that is often how do we say this? Um, very often a sort of social justice warrior kind of platform. And I don't mean that as a pejorative. Some people think think that when you use the term social justice warrior that it's the right wing and you're saying that about someone who's a progressive. And I don't think they would view that as an insult and I don't intend it as an insult. But I do think that that descriptor carries with it a certain essence of expectation that they're coming from an extremely left position in the way that they are reviewing what they review, which is basically comic books, movies, video games. You're talking about the website? Yes, the, the website, the Mary Sue. And um, the they feel that it didn't pass the Bechdel test. And Alison Bechdel is the original test, and she actually included the name of someone else who had helped her develop it, and it's kind of fallen off, so I'm not going to mention it. Yeah, we actually talk about it on many episodes of Anime Attic, because a lot of anime uh, doesn't pass, but a lot of it does, which is really interesting. Well, we're going to take a little break, and when we come back, we're going to get into the the pass or fail on the Bechdel test. Um... Because I think that there's a great discussion to be had, and I think that Spider-Man is the perfect movie to discuss it with. So 60 seconds from now, please return for 
Pod Sequentialism with Matt Kennedy. Welcome back to Pod Sequentialism. I'm your host, Matt Kennedy. I'm here today with my producer and engineer, Mason Booker. Hello. Huge fan of the show. Thanks for having me back. Absolutely. Thank you. It couldn't do without you. <laughs> and the topic, of course, has been the new Spider-Man. And we were talking right before which the Which I break, have not seen. Which Mason has not seen. And so I've, I've got to be careful not to discuss anything that's going to be a spoiler. And I, I think I've done a pretty good job of it. I don't I'm, think I'm pretty impressed. Thank you, thank you. I, I don't think that anything that we said thus far is going to uh, take away from anybody's enjoyment. Everything you've said so far is things I either already knew or had heard about. And that's why I wanted to kind of preface that with, we've seen this in the press, uh, it was unavoidable, you've, you probably already know this, and that's why I'll talk about it. I'm not going to talk about anything else that, that aligns to plot points in the film. The I will say, no, yeah, I will say this. It's great to see Martin Starr smile, that's all I'll say. So we haven't seen him smile since Freaks and Geeks. Uh, if you if you watch the television show Silicon Valley, he's always kind of like you know dour, doesn't really smile much. So, and of, 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 we have to mention, of course, that the the screenplay was co-written by Martin's Freaks and Geeks co-star. Oh, so it's it's really cool to be able to have you know people from a beloved television show kind of return and do some really really great things. I'm not going to get too mired in. You can check all the stuff on IMDb if you want to find out more. But what I do want to talk about is the Bechdel test. And as we explained before the break, Alison Bechdel's original test had three requirements for a film: one, a movie has to have at least two women in it; two, they have to talk to each other; and three, it has to be about something besides a man. The um, subsequent additions to it have included having to know their names. And so one thing that they say, you know, clearly there are at least two women in the film. And there are moments when the women talk to each other. And there are, or at least are engaged in conversation with a group of people. So they don't give it a pass on this, on the Mary Sue, the the website that, um, you know, ran the headline that, Spider-Man Homecoming doesn't pass the Bechdel test. Uh, it doesn't come close, end quote. Uh, the author of this is Kyla Hale-Stern. Uh, you can read some of her columns. They have a sort of similar tone. Is she saying that even though the women talk to each other, it's about stuff that's completely unimportant to the plot? Yes. Interesting. I would disagree, and I think that the characters would not necessarily be talking to each other outside of that contest context that in order for something to make logical sense and for something to ring true characters have to be honest to the character and the women portrayed in the film uh, both are women of color Mm -hmm. so almost every major female character in the film is a person of color sure aunt may being an exception Marissa Tomei. Marissa Tomei. Yeah. And she has lots of screen time, and she's fleshed out, more so, I think, than the comic. I mean, Aunt May was really just <laughs> well, a... Well, in the comic, Aunt May was a, a, a 60, 80. Yeah. I believe, it, I believe her big contribution to the plot was, Peter, eat your wheat cakes. Yeah. So, you know, the one thing that I will agree with the Mary Sue is that we don't know much about Aunt May. Really? Yeah. We really don't know. Maybe they were worried that Marissa Tomei was so hot that if we started exploring her character, it would detract from the main plot. I think she's realistically attractive. You know, the the, Listen, the running gag is that people no are... No complaints. Right, right. But the, the running gag is that people are just like head over here. Like they're always kind of like giving her the eye. And it's it's funny. It, it could get in old. In the film. Yes. Okay. It could get old. I think it falls short of getting old. The... But we don't really know what she does for a living. We don't know her job. We don't know how she makes money, how she's able to afford the house. I mean, because we don't know how her husband passed away in this universe yet, we we can assume we know because we've seen the origin so many damn times. But, I mean, for all we know, she's a 9-11 widow. Oh, interesting. You know, like she could have, she might not need to necessarily work. I don't think they'd mess with the origin. Although, I guess in this film, based on the trailer, he's kind of rediscovering his powers like he doesn't well he's 16 years old mm-hmm. so if that's 9-11 was 16 years ago right and so it would be almost odd 
to not address that in some aspect. I mean, certainly he didn't become Spider-Man at birth, but I think right. that it's a very interesting timeline the way that it works out. So I'm not speculating. Oh, actually, that's a good point because it would have happened when he was a baby. Yeah. So, hmm. you know, so there, there's a whole bunch of, and it's not not apparent. You know, we don't know what happened to his parents in this universe. Well, you never know what happened to his parents. Yeah, but that's always the big thing. So I, I think that that they do have a point in not really explaining it, but there's also. I think that they they don't give enough credit to the idea that the the two the two girls that are really in um, in Peter's juvenile life will say you know one a crush and one a classmate is they they're friendly but they're not friends. Oh, so they know each other. They go to the same school, but they don't actually hang out. Yeah, I mean they're they're both in one you know academic club together. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was in academic clubs and on in sports teams in school, and there were other kids in those teams and environments that the only time I spent around them was in those activities and had very little interaction overall. Yeah, I always find it very interesting when you, uh, and this happened to me all the time in high school and in life, mm-hmm. uh, I'll run into somebody, I'll enjoy their company. We clearly both like each other. We clearly both want to hang out. Never do. Yeah. It's really weird. So Liz and Michelle, Mm -hmm. um, same age, similar backgrounds, possibly. I mean, we know more about one than we know about the other. They don't seem like they would hang out, honestly. So for there to be this protocol in place that would demand that they have a 60-second conversation is, to me not good for the plot but this brings into something are these, about are these pseudonyms that you use no Liz. these are their names their names are liz and michelle oh okay i don't know who they would possibly be because in. they're not characters from the comic necessarily i see and so what i what i think spoiler is, well <laughs> anyway, okay. i said necessarily nah, right. i mean i've lost necessarily I've, listen i've missed out Okay. On a lot of Spider-Man in the in the past twenty years, I'm going to be honest. Sure. I, I tried to give the Bendis Ultimate Spider-Man um, a read, and it just didn't click for me. It, it was not aimed at me; it was aimed at a much younger audience. And you know, the third thing about something besides man, I mean, I argue that 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 is met, and we do know their names, so even that other criteria is met. So when they say that it fails and it doesn't even come close, it's really ultra critical. And so one of the examples that the author of this piece mentions is, you know, that they've done such a good job of bringing in people of color and all the women have significant parts, but they exist simply to advance their interactions with Peter. And so it it sort of fails. Now, I don't necessarily see that as being part of the criteria of the Bechdel test, but there's here's a bigger issue. There are a lot of films that pass the Bechdel test that are terrible movies. Sure. And you can have, by that criteria, two women characters that have a conversation that isn't about a man, that is inc- that are presented in incredibly misogynistic context. Yeah. So it still passes the Bechdel test, but it's still a terrible representation of women. And you can have a really good movie that doesn't pass the Bechdel test for criteria beyond its control. You like, I think they give the example of Name of the Rose, which of course takes place in... 1400 medieval times. Monastery. Yeah. Where there's not going to be a lot of women around. Well, there's one. There's one. Anyway. And, and and arguably has the greatest impact of anybody in the film and is a very positive representation of, of a female female person. What? But it fails the test because it doesn't pass the test. You know, th- this artificial sort of, um, you know... Standard? Standard, I guess, is, is maybe not even the right word. I, I guess you have to go back to criteria. that it, it's, it's an arbitrary set of rules. And I would compare it to Dogma 95. Dogma 95 was a set of very stoic, specific rules about making a movie, and it had to pass that 10 criteria. It was a, it was a movement. Right. It started Lars von Trier, right? Uh, Lars von Trier and a few other filmmakers, uh, Scandinavian filmmakers, and Thomas Vintersborg has done a couple, and, and there's been a few other people. Uh, very famously, I think, Harmony Corinne made a I'm film sure. that, sure that suited did. to Dogma 95. Yeah. And it, it was a list of 10. I'm not going to, again, you can, you can search it out. It's, look it for was Dogma basically 95. 
removing all of the mo- most of post from films that yeah. they they were arguing that the addition of uh sound effects and and visual effects and all this other stuff uh, was was detracting from the the real art of filmmaking which was storytelling right and they were kind of like covering it up with with makeup basically so, so any any music say on the soundtrack would have to be playing in the scene as you shot it which meant yeah. that you would have to almost really hear the song start and hear the song end mm-hmm. or it wouldn't work. So that means lots of long takes, which means that you have to have really good actors who are able to maintain character. Right. And that also meant very short scripts. That meant a lot of improvisation because right. it's really difficult to keep nailing the same thing under such long takes with such a specific criteria. And so it, it was, it became an actor's medium for a little while. And right. a lot of films came close and it was good that they came close. And the ones that came close but didn't match it are better movies. I mean, let's be honest. None of the Dogma 95 films are masterpieces. Uh, people argue the first one that came out, The Celebration, they argued that one. Is... Oh, my God, the camera work. I almost threw up. I had to leave the theater. I mean, you know. Yeah, the um, it was incredibly difficult for me to watch on a big screen. I saw that in the theater. I, I had to get up and leave. I, I felt nauseous. But just so people know, it was basically one camera guy who was doing it handheld, and then the uh, audio was the, was basically the sound guy with a boom. Yeah. That was it. Yeah, and it, and it's it's interestingly plotted, but I would not I do not have the high opinion of it that I have of other Lars von Trier films, sure, and just other films in general. And so I think that sure, it's a good idea to have this criteria. And I think it's a really positive challenge. I think that if you issue this as a challenge to somebody and they attempt to incorporate these elements into the film, and and I speak of the Bechdel test, that I think you can get better film and I think you get better representation but I don't think you should do so at the detriment of having a believable enjoyable film but actually don't you when given a a um challenge a huge property like Spider-Man that you that you're guaranteed young women are, are going to go see and draw presumably draw inspiration and empowerment from well i guess the don't, don't you owe that don't you owe them the bechdel test but there is no guarantee no but i'm saying as, there, there's as the there's, filmmakers like no but i'm saying that that the that from the point of view for of a film like spider-man mm-hmm. they're not counting on a large female fan base what? superhero films are really aimed at you know young white males yeah I mean, that's, that's the core of the audience. When you get the women into the theater for films like Thor, it becomes a very important part of that demographic, and it gives it a bigger audience. Certainly, Guardians of the Galaxy, I think, had, had a pretty good um, population of women viewing it as well. And, and I'm sure with Spider-Man, they are going to get a lot of young people, you know, just plural genderless. Like, you're going to get a lot of young women. You're going to get a lot of young men. You're going to get a lot of people who identify as either or neither. Right, and that's what I'm saying. Like, if you're expecting that type of crowd, I mean, even if it is aimed at young boys, presumably they're going to bring dates or whatever. Um, Don't you owe it to them to try and pass the Bechdel test? I don't know if you owe it to them. I think you owe them a good movie. And I think that... Are you arguing that passing the Bechdel test in Spider-Man would make it less of a movie? No, but I'm here's, here's something to consider. Maybe those elements were in first cut. Oh, so then you're saying the producers took it out? Could possibly? have, possibly. <sighs> that for timing, that for, you know, that an action film has a certain pacing, and if you break too long, a 60-second conversation between two female characters in a movie that is called Spider-Man um, could be... A little long like that 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 particular criteria like because what's a conversation it's not just a couple of words so well, that's a couple of lines but i'm saying especially because the full the full name i'm just going to be your your, advi- your yeah. advocate here spider-man homecoming that's clearly got some topics that you can talk about homecoming is is an intense time in high school if that's the homecoming that it refers to I, which is i don't know but i would i would assume there's got to, There's always a dance, Peter. in a in a high school movie. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you could see. I mean, who's he gonna ask? Do you want me to tell you? I no, mean, I don't want to. I'm gonna go see it, but I. The saying. There's there's validity there, mm. but I I think that. Anytime you have a word with more than one meaning in a title, 
<laughs> it means more than one word. But, come on. Right? Sometimes. Not Almost all, not always. Not all the time. Almost always. I, I suppose. that That's the fun of it, especially in genre fiction, because people love the double entendre in genre fiction. Sure. So, you know, Homecoming, in a way, it's like we're bringing this character back home. Sure, I can see that. I think that. that's the bigger thing. And I and I understand that. But. Yeah. And so the other usage, if it is indeed in the film, becomes a, a bit more on the nose or anecdotal, either way. Right, but I can't, Im- I can't imagine it's not. Is it based off of a comic run, by the way? I, I, don't, I don't read Spider-Man. But... Not to my knowledge. Oh, okay. Honestly, this, this, what I think is great about it is that it has elements mm-hmm. of different comics. Yeah. And there are characters that you're going to recognize. Uh-huh. Um, some of these characters are characters that, were, that would be in the Sinister Six movie. Sure. That... I guess started life and then ended, but they shot quite a bit of it. Oh, I and I imagine that with recastings, that that footage is gone, is lost. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of seeds planted in this film, and they're all good seeds. Like what I think is bad is when something gets dropped in, and you're like, "That was a really ham-fisted way to, to work that into it." Everything here is not necessarily explained. You'll get it later. Just like a lot of the Easter eggs you've seen, oh, they're banking on sequels. Yeah, working towards the Infinity Gauntlet. There's a lot. If you know it, sure. it's there. Yeah, and you're like, yeah. And the guys that were sitting next to me in the theater were like giddy with delight. Like sure. it, it, they were so excited to see stuff that they knew about that I could tell it was killing him not to turn and grab me and shake my arm, <laughs> and because he didn't know me well enough. Sure. And be like, can you believe that was just that just happened? Right. And, when the when the Ramones songs come on in the soundtrack, if you know, you are super excited. Like it, it's like this is perfect. Yeah. And there's there's a lot of other songs that don't seem to fit kids that age, but fit people older who were that age when, when those they, songs when they came were, out. When they were reading the comics. When one spoiler, there's a television song in the soundtrack, which is so weird. Oh. Okay. You know that that um you know Richard Richard Hell and and uh, television that that it's it's so amazing that someone decided to put that in there and and that's very much a tribute to the downtown scene in New York mm-hmm. and when it plays is is pretty relevant if you know that history which is going to be less than one percent of one percent of the people who see this film but it's there for them interesting and so from that criteria if we come back to the Bechdel test if you're dropping little things for those cats then maybe you should drop in stuff that do, that does pass the Bechdel test. But like I say, I disagree with their assessment. I think that it does pass those two criteria, that there is a conversation, that it is not about the uh, main character. It may not be necessarily like overtly consequential to the film, but I feel that it is because it hinges on an event that is in the film. Well, I guess my question to that is, well, there's two. The reason I asked about Spider-Man: Homecoming, if it was a comic series like uh, like Civil War or something, was mm. I was curious if if they were if in the source material they, they didn't um, speak to each other. But clearly, that's not the case. Mm. So my second thing is: these two women are they are they at all uh, significant characters to the plot? Because it, you could you could have two women who are borderline extras talk to each other and be like, oh, it passes the Bechdel test, but. These are these are main characters. Okay. And I mean it's hard to, consequence is hard to develop and it's hard for me to give away. Okay. So like until you, when you see the film you tell me if both of them are consequential. Okay. I think they are. Okay. And I would argue that if we move three films down the line and look back that there's going to be a lot of characters in this film that might have seen like throwaway characters that are very important that are going to come in in a couple of uh there's a potential for films that. there's a potential for that i see and even really you know not very consequential characters that if you know your spidey history it's very possible that they become very very big deal that's cool now the those two particular women i think ha- they both have a bit of screen time one has a lot of screen time and i think it would that you couldn't have the movie without one of them it wouldn't be the film. Sure. So I, she's obviously very consequential. Won't say which one. Oh, <laughs> I, I can't imagine who you're talking about. All right. So, you know, I, I, I feel that in a way it does pass. And so I think with every time there is a setup of this variety, you know, that there is a, a, a system in place that 
is it's a judgmental system for sure. You know, the idea was someone said, hey, you know, we need to have more representation um, of women and the, and the women need to be better characters. That That's a good thing. I, I applaud that. I, I'm glad somebody brought that to someone's attention. And then they kind of retroactively went back and reviewed some films before it existed and said, well, here's an example of it working. Here's an example of it not working. One thing that I've read, and I'm I, now I really want to get in, I want to check the data, says that films that follow the Bechdel test have made like $4.2 billion and the ones that don't have made 2.6. And I find that hard to believe. I don't, I mean, I can't say, I don't know, but I will. Because of how many blockbusters don't pass it? I'm sure a ton, but I will say this. I think the fact that you're saying it passes it in a way uh, signifies that it, it didn't cut it. Well, no, but I think that 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 ability to interpret is what, by my standard, I think it passes. Because that they, if you just read just on the face of it. Right, but I think the point of the Beckel test is you shouldn't have to come at it with interpretation. You but sh- they're, you, they're you, interpreting it differently than I did. Right, which means it's it's weak, right? So well, no, I think, you, you, you I think to, their interpretation is harsher than, than the standard that is on the surface. The surface just says it has to have two women in it. They have to talk to each other. And it has to be about something besides a man. They do all three of those things. I would say that you, they need to be presented in such a way that there is no question. If, I think it's unquestionable. It, but she thinks it is questionable. So therefore, I think that that inherently means it's, it's failed the test. If the test is not self-evidently passed, I don't know, man. I, I mean, don't I don't know. know. I haven't seen it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but I, we're we're getting into semantics anyway. And she and the author clearly likes the movie too. Interesting. But well, she's you saying can, that you can love movies that don't pass it, but it's unfortunate that they don't pass it. Well, I I guess... love Blade Runner. It doesn't pass the Bechdel test, right? I guess that. They're maybe involved in a circular conversation so that there's multiple people participating in the conversation. It's not just the two of them. If she's interpreting it that way, then that would... that would. Oh, are they talking to other people instead of to each other? Are they doing like telephone? Tell Sally that I'm blah, blah, blah. No, but if there's six of us in a room and we're all sure. having a conversation and... We're, we're we're obviously talking about, the same, about the same thing with each other, like a homecoming dance. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I or a math problem. Sure. Or trivia. You know, whatever it is sure. that um, that I th- I feel that it that it passes that because of the way that the scene is edited together, and I think that the like I say the danger of having an uninterrupted, um, unedited conversation is can prolong a scene unnecessarily. That uh, because really the plots of films, especially action films, do rely on moving forward into the action. I understand your point, but I also think that the spirit of the Bechdel test is the two women talk to each other directly without interruption. That's not what it says, though. I think the spirit of it is that. But that, see, that's an interpretation because you said, I think. Matt, we're limited by language. language right. It's, language is not all encompassing. But no one limited them when they wrote the rules to the number of words that they implemented. Well, I mean. If they, were, if they had a specific idea right, about so it, you're they getting, could have Right, so you're getting it. into the letter of the law versus the spirit of the law. And I say the spirit of the Bechdel test is the, you know, that the, it's understood that the two women should be talking to each other directly. It doesn't say directly. I know it doesn't. I'm talking about the spirit. I don't know. It would have been easy to amend. Like, if that's what they mean, that's what they should say. Maybe Alison Bechtel will come out with an updated version. She could. Although I I suppose perhaps the true spirit of the Bechtel test is to just simply spark a conversation like we're having. Could be. And I think that really the spirit of it is that there are women represented realistically in a film. Sure. And that it encourages the casting of more fully fleshed out female characters in films. Sure. Instead and of I, just objects of desire. And you can, you can have that and still fail that test. Yeah, of course. So it's, I think that, like I say, it, it's a really good thing to consider when putting a film together. That if you are working on a film and you're like, you know what? Let's let's try and work these in. And if you go through cut after cut after cut and not all of them make it in as, I guess, articulated 
in a more specific way than this is this is written out. Like if we were to take that your spirit of it includes other words, if you were to use that as as the thing that you're striving for, and you can fall back and at least hit these, if you can defend it on some level, then I think you've at least considered it. You've tried and you've you've made as good a film that you can make. Then I think that we're all better for it. I think that everybody is better off for it. And I can hardly see someone faulting, wanting to make it better, but that if, for whatever reason, the cut of the film, the take that you get when you shoot it that has it in there, you know that as as every film has a budget and you've got a, a few chances to get stuff right, that you want to make sure that the really important plot elements and the best performances of the cast get across the point of the screenplay that some of these things can fall off fall off the the horse and i i like that people are obviously thinking about it and implementing it in a way but i feel that the necessity of hitting them all is more of a macguffin than it than it would seem that because you can have a great movie that doesn't conform to it and because you can have a film that conforms to it that is terrible and because you can have a film that conforms to it and does so in a very bad way for women that it becomes just another criteria that can easily become a checklist that if all you're doing is implementing these three rules so you can check off a list and you can present it almost as a brand name you know like organic food you know which is just a brand name that you are somehow getting an audience that you may not deserve. And that worries me because I think easy classification is a bad thing for films because that leads to stereotyping because none of these say that they can't be stereotypes. They could be completely stereotyped. They're not. Beautifully, they're not. They're, they're like really strong, independent, intelligent girls. And, you know, if, if you were a dad, you would love to have these girls as your kids. If you were, you know... If you had a, a son dating one of these girls, you'd think he was he was privileged and lucky and blessed to be able to have these these girls in his life. So I think that because it has accomplished that, it has accomplished beyond what that test would require. And so I think that that has to be considered beyond a clickbait title like Spider-Man Homecoming doesn't pass the Bechdel test. It doesn't come close. Um, doesn't come close is really superfluous because I think it not only comes close, it it exceeds the spirit of that test. But not the letter. Is that what you're saying? Well, I think by the letter it does because okay. you were talking about yeah, a, no, a no, spirit no, which, know, is in, which is not articulated I and I think that she's talking about something which isn't articulated. I got you. But you're going to enjoy it. So I think that anybody who hasn't seen it I'm should excited. go see it. I'm excited to try and see it. Yeah. So I know it's unusual, oddly, that uh, we spend so much time on a very timely topic like this, of something that is specific to a moment in time, and and comic books, honestly, even though this this podcast is ostensibly about comics, that we've um, spent so much time on on one thing. But I think it, it taps into a universality. The reason that this movie is going to do bang up business and is is being so revered is because obviously a lot of respect has been given to the the source material. Like we say, this is what the fifth. Fourth or fifth reboot? Sixth, I don't know. I mean, you go back to, if you count animated versions of the character, we're we're probably on version nine. Oh, at least. And, you know, it took this long to have a kid who seems like a teenager, who has real (laughs) friends who are real teenagers, you know, and they are all teenagers. You know, none of them are are, are really, really old. And it's just wonderful to to have them represented in a good way and to, to have them be pretty fleshed out. And to have just realistic situations in a film which is inherently so rooted in fantasy. Sure. So, and and there's there's a lot of great tech. There's a lot of great tech in the movie. Yeah, I think one of the things that no one recognizes about Spider-Man is Peter Parker is a technical genius. Yeah. He builds his own web shooters at least originally. Yeah, yeah. That's that's the you know, they didn't revert back to him having a mutant ability to uh so, to fire webs. So weird. Yeah. <laughs> the um we have there's there's some things that are staples of the character that haven't been spelled out yet that I think they may get to and I hope that they kind of include it as a as a post pubescent thing <laughs> that kind of pops into a future oh, sure. show right. which would be really really cool but that it it fits in the Marvel universe it's a believable um a believable version of the character maybe more so than any and you know it, it's the best screen time that we've seen from John Favreau and since Swingers 
I love John Favreau. He's great. All right, so I think that's probably a good place to leave off, and I hope you've enjoyed this, and we encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other past episodes that we've mentioned in this podcast. You know, we spend a lot of time trying to figure out who the good guests are going to be at the specific time that we can get them in and cover as much ground as possible while trying to keep it to an hour, and uh, here we are doing it again. So go back, listen to other episodes of Pod Sequentialism, check out some of the other shows on the Meltdown Podcast Network, Visit Gallery 30 South. Uh, go to Wacko Soap Plant Superstore and visit La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And uh, get yourself a copy of the Pop Sequentialism Catalog, which is available from some online retailers, but specifically available from uh, the author, me. <laughs> and you can uh, get one for, uh, for 10 bucks. And uh, I'll be happy to sign it for you and send it back to you. And it's limited edition. And then we're going to be expanding it into a hardcover, which will be coming out in 2018. So uh, talk to you soon. Hello, this is Matt Kennedy from Pod Sequentialism. And um, what many, many of you may know that I, I do run a gallery in Los Angeles called La Luz de Jesus Gallery. And what you may not know is that it's inside Wacko, which is probably the greatest center of pop culture in the world. And it may sound like hyperbole, it's not. Um, you can, if you don't want to trust my judgment, you can listen to people like Kevin Smith, uh, James Gunn, uh, David Mack, um, all of whom will swear that uh, one of their favorite places on earth is uh, Wacko, the shop that houses La Luz de Jesus Gallery. Um, whether it's blind box toys or little tchotchkes or art books, it pretty much is the place that you can get all of your Christmas shopping done for every possible annoying person to buy for that you can imagine. They've got everything, and I highly recommend that you visit them. You can visit them online at soapplant.com. You can visit the gallery at laluzdejesus.com, and that's spelled L-A-L-U-Z-D-E-J-E-S-U-S.com. Check them out and tell them Matt Kennedy sent you.